Here we go. Chris, what's going on, my friend? I appreciate you doing this. Oh, dude, I'm so excited. This is, uh, ever since you reached out, I thought, okay, we, we got a lot to talk about. We do. And we're going to start off with this. Everything you read on the internet is true. Is that correct? 100%. It's been verified. Hand of God. Your Wikipedia and your Twitter says you're a Lancaster, Pennsylvania guy, but yet you call me from beautiful Hawaii. So what's going on here? Either you're lying or the internet's lying, Chris. What's going on? <laughs> the internet's a little slow, man. You think it was being rapid fire, but it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm too quick. It can't keep up with me. Uh, here, here's what happened. So originally I'm from Philly, mm-hmm. from South Philadelphia to North Philadelphia. And then um, on a whim, my wife and I moved out of Philly, out to Lancaster and spent 20 years on a farm there in Amish country, but she's from Hawaii and never planned to spend more than like a couple months in Philly. And then 20 some years later, she's on a farm in Lancaster. So we were kind of always eyeballing an opportunity to move back. And then when the pandemic hit, we said, let's do it, man. Let's cut and run right then. And so within five weeks of the pandemic, rehomed the animals, sold the farm, packed one crate, starved the shit out of the kids, and uh, we're on a plane to Hawaii. We've been here ever since. Let me ask you, because you're a city guy, like you said, Philly guy. I'm a New York guy living in Brooklyn. My wife's from the Philippines. So in seven months, I can retire. So we've been looking about possibly going to the Philippines a few months. You're a city guy. How's the transition? Good, bad? What was the biggest adjustments? This is my personal questions now. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, for me, the biggest adjustment wasn't even Hawaii. Hawaii is a weird adjustment because the big adjustment for me was going out of Philly in a Lancaster. Because at the time we left, we were living at 23rd and Fairmount. We were like in the center of North (laughs) Philadelphia. And then suddenly we're in Lancaster and our nearest neighbors are Amish. You know, like you wake up in the morning, there's no buses, there's no car alarms, there's, there's horse and buggies. <laughs> but the thing about it, Mike, is it's fantastic, man. You know, just to have the quiet of your own thoughts. Uh, it, it, I loved it. So we spent 20 years in Lancaster. That adjustment was easy going from the city to absolute solitude. Then I get here and now I've got some neighbors. And the first week we're here, I was telling my wife, are we going to move? No way. No way. I walk out the door. There's five people saying good morning. Like, what the hell is this? So, no, dude. I, I So, where in the Philippines would you be? Would you be in a country environment? Would you be city? Beach. More beach. Because I'm still a city guy. But I want to be at the beach for a few months. That's why I figured you, city guy, Hawaii, New York guy, maybe Palawan, El Nido, out there. So, that's what I'm thinking. I live in the Philippines. But you just said you're going to go from New York to the beach. Trust me, dude. <laughs> that would be the easiest transition in the history of transitions. Now, more importantly, hey, man, what's, what's yeah. that? What was that? Congratulations behind you. What's that for? Oh, the marathon. Oh, right on, dude. Yeah, right the New York on. City Marathon. Uh, it's it's ironic. It actually runs down my block, right where my house is in Bay Ridge, in Brooklyn. So my wife was outside with the signs, and then when I came home, she had all the balloons and all the signs. So I just left up the congratulations sign. Isn't that something, man? Isn't that something? What? that kind of a challenge does for people, you know, like not just for you, but for everybody else, you know, I think we forget when we do these things, we get into our own headspace. Like, mm-hmm. holy shit, 26 miles, you know, am I going to do it? Am I going to have to poop? You know, blah, blah. but you don't realize everybody around you is invested. Like they're into, they're into it too. Don't invest it to the point where I finished. I crossed the finish line and, you know, I looked at my phone for the first time in, you know, four hours a Texas, you're doing great. We see you at mile 18. You're slowing down. Everyone else was fully invested. You know, I I know you don't. We'll get into it, but I didn't come from a family of runners. No one runs. None of my friends really run. I have a few that do. So I'm like, yeah, I'm running five miles today. And then my guys, I'm guys, I'm going out for a quick 13 mile. They're like, oh my. So they were invested for the past <laughs> six months in me. So I got home yeah, and yeah. they made 
they made it a bigger deal than I thought it was. You know, I'm like, yeah, got to bang out a marathon. And they were fully invested. Yeah. I mean, honestly, what you just said, I'm going to bang like quick 13. For some people, a half marathon is a dream. Mm-hmm. You're doing it on a Sunday before you sit down and watch a ball game. You know? Exactly what I did. Seven in the mornings on some, my Sundays. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really cool. It's cool to have that perspective. I, I think it's really cool that you left the congratulations out there. Because when I saw it, I'm like, oh, I'm curious. And now we're having a conversation. It's opening my mind to the fact that somehow you sort of overlook. You know, that's not your thing, man. It's It ripples. Yeah. And there's somebody out there who's like, wow, you know what? Mike did it, man. You know, maybe I should try it. Yeah. Well, you know? it, people I work with now are like, you know, it happens every year. And not because I want to talk more about you, but when I was a rookie, the first detail I ever worked was a New York City Marathon and the streets were packed in the city. And I'm a rookie and I'm like, this is awesome. Before I retire, I'm going to run it. And every year it was an ongoing joke. Now I can retire in July and I'm like, I got to run this. So I reached out to the running club. I'm like, hey, I uh, I made a commitment to myself 20 years ago and I'm just going to finish up with it now. <laughs> I love that, man. I love that whole arc right there. Like. The wide-eyed rookie, like, oh, this is cool. This year's a little busy. I'll get to it next year. And then 20 years go by, holy crap, I'm tapping it out. I got to get to you know, cross this off the bucket list before I'm done. Exactly, exactly. But now I got to go back to you because I'm, again, curious. The most important question we have, Chris, what food are you missing most from the East Coast or from Philly? I got to tell you, man, two things, scrapple and tasty cakes. So I don't know if you, know, do you guys, do tasty cakes travel up there? Do you guys get them at all? We know about it. Not as popular, though. So I, I grew up on them. So in North Philly, there was actually one of the bakeries um, was just outside of where we used to train. So for basketball, we used to run up and down the river. And at the turnaround point, you could smell the Tasty Cake <laughs> Bakery, you know, right outside of Maniunk. And in the morning, you go for a run, like, oh, my God, like it smell baked goods. And it just gets into your bloodstream, like the smell of a bacon crimpet. Is this uh, you know the song for the rest of your life that you want to hear? And uh, I was doing a little book tour, and, and then we're in Atlanta, and we're driving up the road, and I see Tasty Cake Outlet. Like what? <laughs> in Atlanta, I and mean, we just smoked the brakes, and I walk inside, and I'm looking around like I'm at Disneyland for the first time or something, and uh, people are like, well, why are you so fucking excited? <laughs> sorry about the sorry about the f bombs, Mike. No, no, no. Uh, and I'm like, what? You people don't realize <laughs> I'm in Georgia. Yeah, so somehow it's in Philly and Georgia. So, yeah, that and then Scrapple, you know. Uh, yeah, I grew up on Scrapple. Mm-hmm. And then particularly in Amish country, man, Scrapple, I probably had more Scrapple than I had bread, you know, <laughs> in 20 years. What food out there makes you forget about, like, the Reading Terminal Market and stuff? What food out there are you like, listen, Hawaii does this better than everybody? This will drive you nuts. So there are fishermen everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. Dudes will take their boat out. And the amount of like fresh tuna, like out of the water tuna oh. for, for like six or seven bucks a pound is insane. It's insane. So, and there's a guy, he's not too far from me. He, he just plunks a sign in front of his house, you know, ahi today. And the word spreads like wildfire. Like my friends, like, hey, ahi guys, <laughs> hurry up. You know, you, you just, you race over there. I hop my bike, I zoom over there. You go off the bike like pant and sweating, you know, like, do you have any left? He's like, yeah. Like, Simmer now. Have a glass of water. You're good. But to go home with a piece of fresh tuna, like, you know, like sushi great tuna that some guy just yanked out of the bay uh, a couple of hours ago is insane. When I first started doing my research on you, 
I was like, okay, fascinated with your books and everything, but they've been dissected and praised. We're going to get to them, but I got to talk about you because you're, you fascinate me. Philly guy, tall dude, basketball player. You just mentioned running up the hills. How does that translate into rowing crew at Harvard? Now, I'll tell you, that was, you know, you, you sort of look back on your life and you think, okay, you know, did I zig when I should have zagged? Did I zag when I should have zigged? Like, you know, what's, what, what are the turns? But I, I get a lot of questions because number one, you know, so my kids are in college now and, and their friends are applying to colleges and there's this mania about applying to college. Like, you got to go to the best school and you got to do all this stuff. And people are going to freaking jail for driving <laughs> schools. And I think, what difference does it make? You know, like I'm sitting here today. I'm like, Look, trust me, I'm super freaking happy. You know, I'm yeah, sitting yeah. in Hawaii having a coffee. I'm a happy man. Like life worked out pretty good. Mm-hmm. But I look back on it and I go, would anything have been different, you know, um, if I'd gone to any other school? So here's what happened. So I'm a senior in high school. I knew all about basketball. Like that was my, my life. Of life. course, you know, Philly guy, of course. Like playing ball, you know, just roaming the city looking for pickup games. And at the time, you know, six foot five, 200 some pounds. I was a considered big guy back in the 80s, you know, uh, late, late 70s. Today, you know, I'm nothing. You know, I, you know, I, I'm lucky if I could you know, be a shooting guard at that size. Yeah. So uh, I was basically hoping that a, a Div 3 school would bring me in. So I was looking at like your sinus, Dickinson, mm-hmm. talking to some coaches, ho- hoping to go to a Div 3 school. But here's what happened. So early, uh, the, the, um, fall of my senior year, just when basketball starting, this guy walks on the basketball court, coach, I'm sorry, guy walks on the basketball court. He was a coach of a rowing team. And, you know, rowing had been really big in Philly back in the 50s with John Kelly, who was, uh, who was rowing on the Schuylkill. Okay. But then it just died out. So there were all these boathouses, but there weren't many boats. So this guy wanted to start a scholastic rowing program at my school, St. Joe's Prep up, up in uh, 17th and Girard. And he's talking to a bunch of other schools, you know, getting LaSalle and West Catholic. And bit by bit, this is happening. But so he walks on the court. And he calls over all the big guys. Everybody over six foot calls him over and says, hey, as soon as your season's done, I want you to come down in a row. And we're like, yeah, sure, dude. I'm, I'm also going to join the robotics team. That's next on my list. Like, <laughs> never going to happen. But, you know, we had our season, and we didn't qualify for playoffs. We had a pretty crappy season. All of a sudden, it's over. Like, for the first time in my life, I got nothing to do because the season's over. And it's like, you know, February. I got nothing to do. So the coach comes back. He's like, okay, you big guys, I'm ready for you now. And me and another guy, Chuck Sharkey, were the only two guys who went down to the boathouse. Uh, but he actually recruited a bunch of dudes from football, and they were already into it. And these are guys I knew. And these are like the alpha dog, gung-ho guys. And he actually had created a little squad of guys who were really going for it. And the other guy, Chuck, quit. And I'm the only guy from the basketball team that's staying on. And it turned out that I just happened to have, like, the perfect body type. If you're looking for a rower, mm-hmm. this is what you want. And but meanwhile, I've been trying to push that body in a basketball where I was always mediocre. To this day, I'm still <laughs> mediocre on a good day, you know? Uh, but for rowing, I, I'm like a genetic dream. So they, they dropped my ass in a boat. And that first year, man, we won the national championship, national scholastic championship. Wow. And we're getting coaching. You know, all of a sudden, coaches are looking at us. And the boathouse right next to ours on the Schuylkill was University of Pennsylvania. And that coach, Ted Nash, pulls me aside. And he's like, how'd you like to go to Penn? And I'm like, well, dude, I know it's March. You know, I, I know it's too late. He's like, where I can work for you is I can get you a postgraduate year. You can repeat your senior year at a prep school up in New England. Because, you know, the New England schools are dying for, for rowers. 
you can repeat your senior year, you can apply to Penn, and uh, it's a very, very good chance to you'll get in. So I go back to my dad. I'm like, I don't know, man. It sounds kind of like it's kind of like bullshit. Yeah. Going. Uh, it's just a hobby for one year. And now they want me to go to a prep school, do senior year all over again. My dad's like, you know, my dad came out of, out of West Philly, <laughs> kicked out of the house, joined the Marines, served in the Korean War. And I'm, I'm bitching about going to a prep school for a year. And he's like, you want to try the Marines? <laughs> you want to try that for a year? He's like, dude, you, you can stand on your head for a year. You'll be fine. So that was it. That changed everything. Suddenly, a guy who, who was hoping to go to her science and play some ball, suddenly I'm in a prep school uh, at Kent, Connecticut, rowing. We, we bag another national championship. And then suddenly I get Harvard and Penn knocking on my door, which is insane. It also tells you the weird position that athletics plays in, in colleges. Like, it's wild, yeah. What? How am I any different as a student? How am I any different than I was six months ago? Nothing. Same, same dude. But now you're Harvard yeah, Penn material. Harvard Penn material, right? And then same thing. So I get an offer from Harvard Penn. I'm, I'm back to my dad. Like, yeah, I really, I should go to Penn. You know, my, my boys are here. I want to stay in Philly. My dad's like, God damn, man. I, how, how am I still going to lead you by the hand? He's like, you can always transfer from Penn to Harvard. I'm sorry, Harvard Penn. You can't transfer from Penn to Harvard. Like, take Harvard. If you don't like it, then come home. Freaking moron. So every every decision I was making proves that I was not Harvard material. But yeah, it worked out. So I ended up going up there. And the first thing you learn, like I'm sure you run into it, dude. Anytime you're about to walk into a group where you think they're, they're better than you or something, and you look around like these guys aren't anything special, you know? These Harvard jabonis are not special. It's that confidence level. And then they, they see it too. Like, oh, this dude's a confident dude. He thinks he belongs. With, and, you know, like we don't belong either, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you see, like, yeah, these guys come out of prep schools. They had this, they had that. Yeah, but they don't have what you you have, you know, whatever it is. So, and, you, and, you, it. so and listen, there. you had the chip yeah. on your shoulder. You were the Philly dude. And, you know, Philly, New York, Chicago, they do have this aura about them. Like, oh, these guys, oh, wow, he's one of us. It really is. You don't, we're from here, so you don't realize it. But, like, Philly dudes, New York guys, they have, like, that swagger about them, too. You know, I just with that chip on the shoulder, too, Mike, because in some ways, I wonder about, like, you know, do you got to go through life always being slightly pissed off, mm-hmm. you know? On the other hand, I feel like it brings me into a situation like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get that guy. I'm taking that guy down, you know? That guy's kneecaps are mine, you know? So don't you feel like it, it kind of fuels you to oh, without get a doubt. done? Without a doubt. Yeah. And not in, a, not in an overly competitive way, just the point to be like, all right, I'm, no one's better than me. That's kind of how I always look at it. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. But, you know, I get resentments. Like when Born to Run came out, there was an amazing book called The Immortal Life of um, Henrietta Lacks by a writer named Rebecca Sklute. And it was about a woman, an African-American woman, whose DNA was used for genetic testing for pharmaceutical companies. And an extraordinary number of drug patents were based on this woman's DNA. Wow. But her family, of course, were never compensated. They just basically used this, uh, this black woman and they used her as a testing model to test these drugs because she had a rare blood type. So this woman named Rebecca Sklut writes this amazing book. Oprah's all over it. It's a big bestseller. And then she's donating a portion of the money from the book to this woman's family. I hated that girl. I hated Rebecca Sklut. It became a thing in our family. Sklut, goddamn Sklut. Because if she got attention, I was pissed. She's in a bestseller list ahead of me. I'm pissed. Utterly, 
unfair resentment. <laughs> I look back on it now, like, dude, you were psychotic. That's awesome. Psychotic. Well, yeah. well I'm, I'm glad you said psychotic because it actually leads to my next thing. I'm an adventurous traveler. I'm actually trying to visit every single country in the world, okay? It's actually a goal of mine. I'm at 94 now. And you graduate, Ooh. yeah, you graduate Harvard. And you, I know you backpack through Europe. I actually don't know how'd you end up in Angola and the Congo being a war correspondent because Philly guy crew. And listen, we know we think it's the prep guy. This all of a sudden you're covering wars in Congo and Angola, which I'm trying to get visas for. So how'd that come about? Because that part of your life really fascinates me. Yeah. Uh, same thing. Same thing. Uh, the whole idea of like, yeah, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out when I get there. You know, it's kind of the, uh, so what had happened was graduated college, uh, taught high school for a year, which is a horrible mistake. Uh, I was an English major and oh, I'll teach English. I was a, I was a little shithead when I was in high school when I had to be there. <laughs> now I'm going to do it voluntarily. Terrible mistake. So I tried it for a year. Horrible teacher. And then and as soon as I got out, you get one of the perks to being a teacher is that you get a free summer. Mm-hmm. I'm still getting my checks, even though I quit, you know. But I get I walk out of that door in May, and suddenly I got June, July, August to myself before I got to figure out my life. And so some buddies were going to York. I said, hey, can I piggyback and go on your trip? And they sure. So uh, three of us just started in uh, Holland, in Amsterdam, just started working our way south, wow. country to country. And we got to Spain. And here, Spain, Madrid felt to me like South Philly. Like that's where, that's where my, my mom's family's mm-hmm. from. Italian-American, South Philly. I get to Madrid, the neighborhoods, the people, the whole vibe felt like 13th and Oregon. And I think, oh, I, I get this place, even though I didn't speak any Spanish. And so... Uh, I just kind of hung out. My, my buddies moved on, and I just stayed in Madrid and started looking around. I started meeting people, and I met people that wanted to learn English. And I said, hey, I'll tell you what, you teach me English, I'll teach you Spanish. Wow. I met a dude whose dad owns a big warehouse on the edge of town. He said, hey, we need, we need guys to shift boxes. You want to work in the, in the plant shifting boxes? Sure. You know, I get a job. Because, you know, you don't have to speak any language. Pick the freaking box and move it. <laughs> that was it, you know. Get a job shifting boxes in the warehouse, uh, and that was it. It just started to pick up. I started finding it on jobs. You didn't need a work visa back then because they hadn't joined the EU. And that was it. So I, I took the last of my teaching money, plunked it down on an apartment, started learning Spanish, picked up that job. People in the plant wanted to learn English. So they started paying me to teach them English. That was it. Three years later, <laughs> I'm still chilling in Madrid. But here, here's, a, here's a warning lesson for you. So by the end of it, I built up enough word of mouth clientele teaching English that there are these guys in a bank who, um, at the time, Madrid was about to, or Spain was about to join the EU. So everybody in finance, by law, had to learn English. And so suddenly, there's a full core press looking for English teachers. So I'm you're in, you're in hot demand. Hour, right? And I'm working two hours a day, and it's done the rest of the day. So I rock in there at 7 o'clock, teach English till 9. I'm free for the day. But here, here's, here's the warning lesson, man. So this one bank, in the morning, it was me and this British guy, this older British guy in his 50s. We're two teachers. We come in the morning. And we'd sit down with about six or seven of these uh, you know, bank officials, do the English class. And this British guy would walk in every day with this like, full mug of coffee like this mm-hmm. and, and sip it throughout the entire session, which is unusual because in Europe, you know, you don't have like a big gulp. You go to the, the cafe, you have a little beaker, mm-hmm. you know, a little you know, shot of espresso, cappuccino. But this guy, he's got, he's got you know, 16 ounces, he's sipping, sipping, sipping. After a couple of weeks, I realized, oh, that's not coffee. <laughs> that guy was walking in with a mug full of brandy. 
and just like medicating his ass. Oh my god! From seven a.m. till nine a.m., just getting himself quietly messed up. And I look at this dude. I'm like, I don't want to wake up someday and be that guy. You know, wow. like I'm having a great time. I'm in my twenties. I'm in Madrid. You know how fast you wake up at seven? You're fifty five, and all your doors are closed. You know, so I just turn around and go, "All right, I got to get out of here." So I went back to uh, back to Philly, you know. And my family's dream all along had been that I would become a lawyer. Like that was okay. my dad's journey. You know, that was my dad's journey. My dad, you know, his family kicked him out of the house at seventeen, joins the Marines, comes out four years later. GI Bill, he goes to Drexel, has a family. He's working as a telephone lineman, puts himself through law school at night. Oh my God! Becomes a lawyer, dude. I remember the day he passed the bar. I was five years old. I remember it like it happened yesterday because I don't know what's going on. Like, oh, there's a talk. Oh, there's a, a bar, like a bar exam. Like for a kid, well, what is a bar exam? Yeah. It sounds weird, you know? But I remember he got his results on a Saturday morning and my, my grandparents were over, family's over. He's going to open his envelope. And the look on everybody's face, it was like a spaceship had landed in the backyard. Like, oh my God, wow. he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. My grandfather on my mom's side was a butcher. You know, grandfather on my dad's side was a, was an apartment custodian. Mm-hmm. And now the kid is a lawyer. Like, what the hell? So in my, in my family, this was mythological. You become a lawyer, everything changes. So here's the kid, half-assed basketball player, lucks into Harvard. His dumbass would become a lawyer, you know? Yeah. This guy, this guy is going to become Cory Booker. And so but I was just dragging ass. Like, I didn't want to do it. kind of didn't want to do it. Uh, but I figure I'm going to move back to Philly. I'll apply to Temple and I'll just check it out. So I moved back to Philly. And I told myself two years to the day, I'll stay here. Okay. Uh, I'll just check it out. So I, I went back. I took the LSAT. I applied to Temple. I got in. I deferred. Waited another year. Deferred again. And then I, I realized I just don't want to do it. And so I had a buddy who had a friend who's working for the Associated uh, Press in, in Spain as a foreign correspondent. And my Spanish was pretty good by that point after three mm-hmm. years in Madrid. So I, I called this guy up and said, hey, can you get me an interview uh, for a job? He's like, sure. So I, I fly back to Madrid, get an interview for the job. And again, another out of the blue, shouldn't have happened. The bureau chief loved, she was like a, this maverick who loved to hire people who were outside the business, like bringing a fresh eye. Yeah. Nobody's further from the business than me. I didn't know shit. So she hires me as a foreign correspondent, but not in Madrid. She hires me for the Lisbon office. And I'm like, I've never been to Portugal. <laughs> you know, I've never been to Portugal. I don't speak Portuguese. She hires me to be the new Associated Press correspondent for Portugal. Wow. The country I've never been to in my life. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I'll give it a try. And then the day I arrive, civil war breaks out in Angola. So I get there. And the other correspondent's like, I hey, thank God you're here. Like, civil war broke out in Angola. I'm like, oh, well, that's too bad. What, what do we care? We come for Angola. Like, why? It's a former Portuguese colony. Like, oh, shit. Because, you know, not many people, not many people speak Portuguese. So mm-hmm. even though Portugal is in, I mean, sorry, Angola is in, you know, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, it's, it's right next to South Africa, but nobody in the South Africa Bureau speaks Portuguese. So they were shipping the correspondent from Portugal all the way down to Angola to cover the war. And then meanwhile, another war breaks out in Mozambique, another former Portuguese colony. So like that, dude, I went wow. working a half-assed job teaching English to refugees in Philly to being a guy who applied to law school and was deferring, got a job with the Associated Press, I thought, in Spain, 
end up two weeks later in Lisbon, and a month after that, I'm hopping off of a plane in a war-torn country in Sub-Saharan Africa. Like, all right, dude, figure it out. Yeah, well, <laughs> that I'm, was glad, I'm glad you said figure it out because that's not one of the jobs we would think would be on-the-job training. What was your biggest hurdles facing out there? Oh, language, hey, absolutely. Language. Well, there are two things. There are two pressures happening. One was communicating to people. Like, I, I've got to report. I've got to ask, get information. But the second thing is the AP is fast, man. It prides mm-hmm. itself on fast and accurate, and you get it out. And my boss, Susan Lene, uh, friggin' legend, a giant, you know, in the industry. She covered war. She dating back to the 70s. And she's no nonsense. So she's at the control bureau in Madrid. And I would phone in and say, hey, yeah, listen, um, the, the rebels just took over this town of Wombo. She said, all right, give me the story. What do you got? What do you need, 15 minutes? I'm like, 15 minutes. I'll, I'll give it to you like three or four hours. Like, 15 minutes. I go, yeah, well, I had this problem. She said, I, I remember to this day, I don't care about your problems. Give me the fucking story. You know? <laughs> I don't care about your you must you must get I'm sure you got in the police force, right? Of course, I don't of care course. about your problems. Yeah. Right? It, it, Nobody, like, cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody yeah. cares. Right. Get it done. Right? Wow. So anyway, that was it. So I just remember to this day. I remember on a calm day. So I, I was three months that first uh, tour of duty in Angola. And then I get back to uh, to Lisbon. But I remember it being a quiet day in the office. In Lisbon, nothing's happening, and the phone would ring, and I would instantly get a cold sweat down my back. Like, oh my god, I hope it's not Susan. Like, you know, like that woman terrorized me. That a phone ring would make me have this nervous reaction. <laughs> what did I do? Yeah. Uh, but you know, what? I mean, you must have had a boss like that, right? The one that just put their boots so far up your ass you could taste it. But you look back on it, like, thank God they were in my life. Yeah, because they're the one that pushed us. Because if not, maybe we've been lazy, not did it the right way. Let me ask you this, Chris. What was the final moment? Was it um, a scene you saw or something that knew you had to get out there? Because people can't be war correspondents too much. It can mess with you a lot mentally and everything. So when did you know you had to get out? That's a very astute question, Mike. Um, and I, I bet you're one of the few guys who would think to ask that question. Um, yeah, it was, it was in Rwanda. Yeah, in Rwanda. And it was Rwanda and seeing what happened to children that just changes um, – Changes your worldview, dude. Um, and I bet you've seen a lot of it. I think we go through most of our lives unconsciously assuming that there are like, that there's a kind of a, an understanding, you know, like that if you're in trouble, there are people who will take care of you. Mm-hmm. And if other people are in trouble, you and other people will help them. You know, it's just kind of the way it is. Uh, you don't even have to talk about it. It's pretty much, oh, if some guy gets tagged by a car and falls in the street, you're going to run over and help him, you know? And if it happens to you, the bystanders will help you. And then you come to a place where none of that, none of that is true. And, and also you assume that, to me, like hearing a kid cry is an automatic like mm-hmm. response. And whatever's happening stops. This kid's in trouble. And then you get there and go, and, and it's not true. And, and it just suddenly just shakes you to think that, uh, yeah, all rules are up. People will do the worst things that you could ever imagine. Now I think we're probably talking each other's language a little bit. But when you realize that people are worse than you ever thought they were, um, I don't know, man. Gets, I, to me, that was that was it. Uh, and that was the final straw for you. You knew you had to come home to civilian and regular life, correct? I think it was. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't think of it in those terms, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, that was basically it. 
like uh, I wanted to take a, a beat and step away. And, and you find yourself getting into a headspace that is, uh, you know, kind of dark and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and preoccupied, preoccupied. You can't clear your head. That, that's pretty much, have you, have you had that? Yeah, of course. And you know what the thing is, a lot of times, you know, everyone handles differently. A lot of people as, as dudes, everybody, you have to be like the macho guy to hold it in. But once you start talking about it, like, bro, you won't believe what just happened. We saw blank. And it's like, oh my, when you talk to people who never been in situations like we see the you know the the worst that we start evil you know you think you see evil but then when you see firsthand it's not like watching a netflix documentary and then you see it and then you need to talk to people like bro you won't believe what i just saw and like then when you let it out more that's when you become more human and you can like holy that was bad what we just saw yeah you're you're absolutely right about that 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 bro armor that you just you know i never thought i was that guy you probably didn't either like no never i'm the macho guy no i'm just i'm just a normal guy and like if something a problem i'll talk about it. yeah you don't realize it's a problem you don't realize that the talk is going to do anything you also don't want to be braggy and that's the big part of the problem is that i think a lot of these guys you hear about come back from like world war ii and they never mm-hmm. said a word about it because they're not gonna be the guy like, hey you know what i did you know like, you don't want to be that guy uh meanwhile they have so, the greatest stories ever probably and like yeah no i don't want to be bravado and tell no i'm good like Tell us, you know, we want to hear it. But also, they don't realize that would be their own therapy. Like, yeah. there's something that's bothering them. Mm-hmm. You're not bragging. You're actually helping yourself, but you don't realize it. So in my particular case, what happened was, you know, when I got back to Lisbon, uh, so all of a sudden, I'm coming out of, you know, the front lines of Rwanda. And suddenly, I'm back in beautiful, sunny Lisbon on the water, and, you know, eating codfish for lunch. Uh and then, but, you know, just still in the same, you know, kind of headspace. And I got a call from a photo editor that I was friendly with, with the Associated Press in um, New York. She calls me up and she's like, hey, how you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm just adjusting, slow pace, and, you know, getting back to it. And then she's like, I sleep, you know, whatever, it's different time zones, you know, I'm, I'm getting used to it, not sleeping too good. She's like, you, you realize three out of the photographers that you train with are now in psychiatric hospitals. Like three of the, the three of the, wow. the photographers you worked with in Rwanda are now here in New York getting psychiatric help for PTSD. Wow. It's just like, like don't don't tell me you're having trouble sleeping because of fucking time zone. You know? <laughs> you're not jet lag, like, bro. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what opened my eyes. Oh wow. But they came back. And the photographers, you know, every correspondent who's out there writing their stories. They are in the back of the bus compared to the photographers because those guys are always seven steps ahead. They got to be. They got to get it or else it's gone. So we were always on these guys' coattails. So, anyway, yeah, they, they, were, they were even more extreme than I was. And so, like, oh, wow. Okay, these guys are – no wonder these guys are, are, are struggling. But I opened my eyes. Okay, you know, maybe maybe it's time to deal with this a little bit. So And then back to Philly, really, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, then, so took a few months, but I realized – but there are two things that happen. Like one is, yeah, you're, you're in this headspace where you, you, you can't, you're, you're constantly preoccupied. And the second thing is, so I wanted to, to break out of it. I wanted to break out of everything I'd seen for the previous four years and think about something fresh. And number two was that, you know, when you're working overseas, you learn a lot of stuff, but there's no market for it. Because, you know, if, if I'm going to tell, write an article about a rebel battle in northeastern Angola in the Lunda <laughs> province, Nobody in America gives a shit. 
I, I once wrote this 3,000 word article about this town called Wombo. And my boss, Susan, goes, hey, listen, if the entire country of Angola disappears from planet Earth, I'll give you 500 words. Yeah, I get 3,000. <laughs> but but so to me, true. It's, it's fascinating, right? You know? And so, like, all right, I got I to gotta go to a place where I can write longer and tap into something people want to hear. And then at that point, everyone's like, oh, if you want to freelance, you got to go to New York. I'm like, well, if everyone's going to New York, what am I going to do? Yeah. You know, I'm going to go back to Philly where I know stuff that other people don't know. And so I was there, went back to Philly and started freelancing for magazines out of Philly. Now, I love because this story, because you know what? I did so much research on you, and you were going down to Mexico to look into a pop star. Because, <laughs> and I know you, yeah. I want to talk about Born to Run too, but I have a few personal questions here now that I have you and not sitting at a bar having a beer. You go to cover a pop star, and you hear about this uh, native tribe, the Tarahumara. Did I pronounce it correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah good. Yeah. Tell, tell me when you hear about that and how that changed your entire, it changed your entire life. One thing I realized early on was that uh, freelancing was perfect for me. You know, like I think I'm borderline ADHD. I got no attention span. Uh, I don't do well in confined office spaces. You know, um, you know my head's constantly swiveling, and, and I feel like I'm, you know, sixty percent street hustler. Like you know, I'm looking for a little deal, trying to trying to one up shit. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean. So freelancing's perfect. You know, because the thing about freelancing is. When you reach out to an editor for an assignment, you've got no idea if you could pull it off because it hasn't happened yet. So I reach out to an editor and go, hey, guess what? This thing's going to happen next week and like I can do a great story. You don't know if the thing's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to get access. You don't know any of this stuff. So you're trying to sell somebody an editor on a story. So that's exactly what happened to me. I had a friend who's working for the AP down in Mexico. And we're talking. She's like, hey, dude, have you ever heard this story about this pop star? I'm like, no, what's the deal? So she t- and this wasn't in the news in the U.S. yet. So the AP in Mexico was covering it. But yeah, it was a pop star. It's like Beyonce. It's like Beyonce and Jay-Z suddenly vanish, go off the grid with 20 girls, and nobody knows where the hell they are. And the parents are looking, like, where, where the hell is my daughter that was supposed to be a backup singer for Beyonce? And, uh, and they're, they're gone. And suddenly Interpol is searching for the pop star and her, and her manager and the 20 missing girls. But it, had, it hadn't cracked in the U.S. yet. So I, I, uh, I figured I'm just going to go for it. Man. I'm going to reach for the highest bar. So I go to the New York Times Magazine. I'd never written for them before, you know, uh, out, of my, out of my league. Out of my, I was doing, like, fitness articles for Men's Health, you know. Yeah. So I reach out to an editor at the New York Times Magazine and say, hey, there's this pop star. She's on the run. And I, I'm sure I have, like, unique access because I, you know, speak Spanish. Blah, 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 blah. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. If you give me the assignment. Anyway, so – I'm down there researching it, but while I'm down there researching, I keep seeing these pictures of these dudes in dresses and sandals, and it's everywhere. Like you, you know, a diner, and, and like the calendar on the wall has a little picture of this guy in a dress running across the bottom. The license plates have a little image of this guy in a dress. I'm like, who, who's the guy in the dress? Like, what's the deal? And they go, oh yeah, it's a tarumada. They're these amazing runners. So suddenly I'm thinking, huh, I can I can double dip here, you know? The Times is paying my way down, mm-hmm. but I could double dip, get another story, sell it to Runners World. You know, it's like two articles, one expenses, you know, it's perfect. Yeah. So uh, I pitched the runner's world, not realizing how freaking hard it was. I mean, I figured I'd just walk over, interview these <laughs> Indians, get the story and be out. Next thing I know, you know 15 years later, <laughs> still working on it. Uh, that, that was basically it. I was curious about wow. it. And uh, it opened up a whole series of questions in my mind. Like, how are these guys running 80 miles 
at 75 years old in sandals when I'm getting hurt running in cushioned shoes at 32 or whatever I was. You were uh, – yeah. it, it said that you always were writing stuff down. You were always bent over. You said it out in a notebook writing down. While you were down there, I know you were going to do the article. Did you ever think bigger like this might be a book? This is fascinating. Did you know you were onto something yet? No. You know when it, when it, it caught me? It was after it happened. So I was not familiar with ultra running at all. Um, you know, early 2000s, it was still a very niche sport. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, a couple of weirdos in the woods were doing this 100-mile stuff. And I had not – even though I'd done a couple articles for Runner's World, it hadn't really penetrated my head that this is actually a sport. I thought it was a couple of, you know, a couple of weirdos, period. And then, you know, so I hear about this tribe and then I discover, oh, the pictures I'm seeing actually came from the U.S. This was a big thing they had done in the mid-90s. They had shown up in Leadville, Colorado and just crushed the field two years in a row at the Leadville Trail 100, which was one of the elite 100-mile races. I, I knew none of this stuff until I was in Mexico. But this had become legendary. Like our people, our tribe guys went up there destroyed the Americans with all their fancy tech stuff. And that was it. And they've never been back. I'm like, well, why would they never come back? Like, if you're a defending champion, you always go back, right? And uh, so that became my, my first article was, why have they never come back? Like, yeah. what happened? And I was very curious about that. So, um, but th- so that, that was kind of like my, my first entry into it was just that, like figuring out what's going on there. Um, I'll tell you, Mike, you know what? I talked to myself in a circle. I forgot what your original question was. Basically, it was that was it. How'd you get involved at the Tarahumara yeah. and Born to Run? You, did you know it was something special? And by oh, the way, yeah. you're the, you're the best the guest ever because I love that you're talking. It's not me just asking you questions. This is fast because I'm fascinated by all this stuff. When you're, uh, when you're doing the book now, you come home, you start banging out the book. How no, it no, it was, oh. wasn't, wasn't a book yet. So what happened was, oh. so I do a quick one-off piece for Runner's World, right? And then about, about the tribe. But that's when I met this guy, Micah True. And he was like my ambassador to the tribe because they weren't talking to me. It had nothing to do with me, but this guy, he was living down there. So I meet him and he's a fantastic source. So I read an article for Runner's World about this guy, Micah True, his relationship with the Tarumara and how he transformed as a runner. And as I'm leaving, he's like, dude, my dream is to have this 50 mile race. You should come back for this race. I'm like, yeah, you saw me, man. I can't run at all. I'm busted <laughs> up. You know, doctors told me this or that. He's like, you can do it. It's like, come back. And I have another article for Men's Journal interviewing this guy named Eric Horton, who is becoming kind of well-known for the fitness training he's doing in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where he's taking like kayakers and using techniques used for hockey players to train like paddlers and taking paddler stuff, and training rock climbers. So I'm doing an article on this guy. And while we're talking, I mentioned, yeah, I just came back from Mexico. There's this crazy dude running with his tribe. And his eyes just light up. He's like, you're with the Tarahumara? Like, oh, you've heard of him? He's like, oh, my God. Yeah, because he was in Colorado in the 90s when they were there for the race. He's like, I've been fascinated with them ever since. Like, what did you see? And I go, well, they're doing this race. He's like, dude, you get me into the race, and I'll get you ready for it. And I'm like, I can't run, man. He's like, well, I'm just, I'm just writing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just writing, you know? He's like, you can do it. You can do it. It's in nine months. You're going from zero to 50 miles in nine months. I'm like, no way. He's like, trust me. I'm like, all right, let's go for it. So that became the second article, which was, hey, can a fat ass busted up dude train for this race? So I did an article for Men's Health about training for this race. So to me, hey, now now I've, I've dipped in this well twice. I got two yeah. articles out of this. Um, 
But then the end of the, the end of the article is going to be, well, did you did you do the race or not? Mm-hmm. It's like an ounce for the, for the race, and then the story of Born to Run was the race. But when I went down there, it was only to just have the last paragraph for the men's health story. The story is about, hey, I trained for nine months. Here's what happened. Mm-hmm. I went down. I did the race. Yes or no? I go down there, and the race turns into something completely unexpected. But as we're coming back, like two weeks later. We're, we're exhausted, hungover, dirty, all this kind of stuff. And we're on this bus. And it was a whole journey just getting back out. But at one point, we're pulling into Juarez, Mexico, at like 3 o'clock in the morning on this bus. I'm sitting next to Eric. And I'm looking at him going, hey, you know what? I, I think I can write a book. Like, that race is way more than a story. And he's like, yeah, dude, you got it. You know, you, you're, you're riding a tiger here. You, you should go for it. And that was it. But it wasn't until I was actually the race was over that I realized, oh, something pretty epic just happened. As a first-time author, and I have a lot of authors on, you check in reviews a lot when the first when the book comes out. You check in reviews. Oh yeah, dude, you gotta feel the gotta feel the resentment. You know. How about this? You know? First time you saw someone reading your book, you do what? I, I I never seen anybody. I've never come on come across it. Drives me crazy. Yeah, at the point where I'm uh I'm a little bit creepy. Like if I'm walking, <laughs> if I'm getting on an airplane and I see people with books, I'm kind of like, huh? Huh? I'm like checking it out. Like I've I, I walked up to people on the beach and go, excuse me, uh, what do you read? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I'll tell you one thing though, Mike, one thing that was cool was when Born Run came out, it didn't get any reviews. Nobody paid any attention at okay. all. It was not reviewed, nothing. Um, and I was bootstrapping man, like, book comes out and you're a first time author you're super psyched your publisher will set up a couple of like you know speaking events you mm-hmm. can go to a book a barnes and noble there's seven people there five of whom uh-huh. you made come you know nobody gives a shit and this thing you think you know that you'll be talking in like coliseums doesn't happen so all of a sudden a week goes by and that's it it's over like your book's out Oof. you've done all the events you're going to do it's over and i'm like well now what so I started selling it myself. So mm-hmm. I would go to my local bookstore. I would buy 50 copies out of pocket, you know, in cash, but they would give you a discount rate. Mm-hmm. I'd buy them out of pocket and then go resell them. So I would go to like a 5K or if there was like a running club, oh, okay, okay. I'd come to you guys. It's like NYPD running club. I would call you guys. Hey, you guys, my comments, we're going to take 15 minutes of your time. We'll join you for a run. I will tell you about my book. And then I would come talk to you guys for 15 minutes, join you for a run. And then afterwards, I open up the trunk and hey guys, I got books here if you're interested. Wow. And then I would sell them. I would sell them for retail price. So if they sold them to me for ten bucks, but I could resell them for fourteen, those four bucks per book would then cover my expenses for gas and stuff. And that was it. I was selling it out of the back of the car for three months before then it started to get some attention. Was there a moment? Was there a moment when you knew like, oh, it hit, it hit, I got it. Yes and no. So it started to really start to sell. So it came out in May. By June, July, it started to get some attention. Like it, it became like the word of mouth thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you start to see online, oh yeah, have you heard about this book? You know, it's really cool. And you go, oh yeah, starting starting to gather momentum. Um, but then out of the blue, I get a call from the Daily Show. John Stewart on the Daily Show wants me to come on. I'm like, wait, wait, what? Really? Uh, yeah. Like how? And this shit that John Stewart, because again, it's not been in the newspapers. Wow. It's only word of mouth. Turns out his producer's husband is one of the Central Park Track Club guys. And he's on his way. Hey, you got to get this guy. You got to get this guy. I forget this guy's name is Joe something. 
wherever he is. I actually send a case of champagne <laughs> every year because he talked to his wife and said, hey, you should book this guy. And that was it. Like, that was the moment where, you know, uh, unknown dude selling out of the car and selling I'm on the Daily Show. And like, that was it. Bam. And like, went to the top of the bestseller list like the next day. The book Crazy. hits. And you introduced us to characters Barefoot Ted, Jen, Billy, Mika True. How was their reaction to the book? Were they okay with it? Because you know, when you, you're with them at all time, now you're writing the book. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. how was their reaction? So um, overall, really, really, really good. You know, Mike Drew is was um, a cranky guy, you know. Uh, and you know, one thing I, I remind myself is that, as you pointed out, nobody asked me to do this. It wasn't like Jen saying, hey, please, would you please tell my story? No, I'm, I'm intruding on their lives. I'm telling my version of it. And so it is a massive intrusion mm-hmm. to write a book where you take somebody else's story. You know, it, it's uh, I, I would have been and I have been very well prepared for people to be pissed off. I would be pissed off. Sometimes people write shit about me and I'm a little bit pissed off. <laughs> but then I tell them, hey, man, you know what goes around, comes around, dude. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Take it. <laughs> so um, anyway, the reaction, I'll tell you, the, the best reaction of all was so the two people I thought. We're going to have their heads explode would be Micah and Barefoot Ted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I figured these two guys are going to be pissed. And so the first two galley advanced copies I got, before I even gave one to my mom, I sent one to Micah and I sent one to Ted. And uh, Micah doesn't respond at all. You know, he's like, ah, fuck this guy. I guess Ted goes online and goes crazy. He's like, this is the PhD thesis I no longer have to write. Like, <laughs> McDougal has has taken my mind and he's put it into print and blah, 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 blah. But I'm looking at this guy going, you didn't read it, right? Like, you know, um, but to me, man, like in that moment, I'm like, oh, I get this dude now. Like this guy loves attention, but he's honest and fair. He's honest mm-hmm. and fair. And he's the guy that drove me nuts. <laughs> like he really bugged the shit out of me. But his reaction in the book and his reaction ever since to everything, Ted's a guy that is a glory hound, loves the limelight, talk your fucking ears off. But you ask him for a solid, like, no question asked. No question asked. You ask him, oh, yeah, sure, no problem, you know, to everybody. Wow. Very giving, great-hearted guy. So uh, and, and, and Mike, so everybody there, so, you know, Mike had his kind of grumbly reaction. But in the end, we became, you know, remained great friends. Everybody involved in the book. It's one of the, it was one of those weird emotional bonding experiences where we just became knitted together. Uh, I talked to Billy Bo- Billy Bonehead lives here in Hawaii. Uh, Louis Escobar. I just talked to him yesterday. Eric, obviously. So yeah, we we became um, kind of fellow travelers. Yeah. You know that makes me happy because as a as a reader of nonfiction books, and if you watch TV shows, we automatically think. That Jerry, George, Kramer, or Lane are friends forever, you know? And then, you know, the show's over or you finish the last page of the book and everyone has their own lives. So do you even – I know you said to keep in touch with any of them. Do they keep in touch with each other and stuff or – Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you know it's, it's something about the sport of running too, Mike, that I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about. So, yeah. So, yeah, to answer your question, in short, yes, we, we are really tight friends. But you know, to me, it's happened a couple times since then, and I wonder, like, what is that bonding experience? Because here's what happened. So when we were working on Born to Run Two. One of my goals was I wanted this book to be full of photos, and I wanted them to be photos that are different than the usual running photos. I didn't want to see a lot of blonde ponytails. 
I want to see people of color. I want to see gender non-binary. I want to see all the people that are out there running that aren't getting the attention of the Lululemon models. Mm -hmm. And I want the full, uh, you know, all, all in this book. So you, did you get your copy, by the way? I did not. Oh, hopefully, it's, it's, hopefully I think it's tomorrow. Yeah. Like, yeah, like Thursday or Friday. So it should be there any minute now. But dude, I, I, if I show you just pictures, like you might have seen the cover, like that to me is the cover. Like, because those are real runners. Running, yeah, those are runners. Aesthetic guy running with his dog, my friend Iman, African American, Karma, who's gender non binary. You know, I, Eric, I was actually <laughs> supposed to be in this picture. You know, I did, <laughs> like, you like this. You know, I did. It's our friend Louis Escobar from Born okay. to Run. He was taking the pictures for this. And, uh, I was I was right here. I was right here where the dog is between uh, Marcus and the dog. Okay. And uh, but I didn't like somehow how the, the lineup was. So I run down the hill, the backseat drive the photographer, the professional photographer, tell him what to do. And uh, <laughs> while I'm doing that, he takes the pictures, which we end up using no. on the cover. But you're not in it's it. The only one. Yeah. So this guy Zach, he was sitting on his rock the whole time. <laughs> And, uh, and Carmen was over here. Okay. And so this is the only picture where he's not sitting down. So we looked at all the pictures. And I mean, Zach's sitting in every goddamn picture. But we wanted to see him standing up on his on his prosthetic blade. The time I'm not there, it was, that was the one picture. So I, I'll show you. You know, <laughs> you can add a backseat drive to photographer. You end up not being on the cover. What should we expect from Born to Run 2, the ultimate training guide? What should we expect to read from that? Yeah. So um, there are two things about it. So the one thing was that – um, I wanted to reflect this thing that happened to us in the original Born to Run was a bunch of strangers. I have nothing in common with Jen Shelton. I hope I have nothing in common with Barry for Ted. Like <laughs> people, you know, but actually we have a lot in common. I probably, the reason why it probably irritated me was we're, we're pretty similar. Um, people who would never meet in any other walk of life, you put it into a running situation and something happens where they become first cousins and that happened in born and run and it, to me it happened repeatedly i'll show up in san diego and go for a run with a, a group of latino women called sentinel harry's and i become really affectionate with them like i really love them ever since something about sharing physical distress bonds you and so for this photo shoot same thing happened we put these runners together who are as different as can be for a photo shoot for the book early on before the book was even written and I became so like bonded with these people and they became bonded with each other. And that's what I wanted to reflect on Born to Run too, was so many of us have this perception of running as being this solitary thing mm -hmm. that you gotta do to get in shape and you gotta bang out your miles and you gotta go hard. And we associate it with, with pain, misery and isolation. And what I wanted to say was, dude, if you're doing it right, it should be joyful and collegial and friendly, you know, and that, most of us, by necessity, had to do those 13 miles on a Sunday morning by ourselves because we, we don't have a lot of time. But I guarantee you've never had a run with a friend that wasn't the best run of the week, right? Whenever you run with somebody else, mm -hmm. you never come home and go, well, that, that was a bad idea. You know, No, <laughs> it's always better. So that's basically what Born to Run 2 is all about was I wanted to try to change that, that mentality and tell people running is not a punishment for pizza. You know, that their running can be joyful. You can be free of injuries. You can feel balance in your step for every run. You can learn how to share it with other people. It can be an upward spiral of feeling better, getting better. You know, it always feels better as opposed to kind of a downward spiral. Like, oh, I'm kind of injured. I'm kind of mm -hmm. bummed. I don't really want to do it. You know, 
And that, that's what we were trying to do with this book. How was it writing this your third or fourth book? How was it writing with Eric Horton, writing a, a book with someone else? Was it difficult? Because I've had authors uh, on who did a, a collab. Was it different? So much better, man. Was so it really? Wow. Yeah. And I'm also trying to, I'm trying to unpack that too and figure out why. Part of it, a large part of it, is that Eric's such a great dude mm-hmm. um, and so freaking smart. So <laughs> imagine you got to write a book where you don't really have to know anything. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I got, it's like an external hard drive of like wisdom. So I'm like, hey, Eric, man, I'm not sure what to do with the footwork session. And he just tells me, oh, there you go. <laughs> so number one, the dude had all the knowledge. Uh, number two, he's just such a thoughtful, chill dude. Um, and number three, it's just so helpful to just – so here's, here's, a, here's a case in point. So we believe that running form – is the beginning, middle, and end. Like you can perfect your form. Just like if you're trying to hit a tennis ball with a racket, you don't just like chop at it. You learn how to do it and it's easy. Mm-hmm. You don't know how to do it and you send the ball over the fence, you know? And for us, running is the same way. If you learn perfect running form, then running feels really good. But very few people ever, ever, ever try to learn form. So our, our question was, well, how can you teach form in a book? Because you give people instructions, they're going to interpret all kinds of different ways. Even if you get 15 pictures, you know, they're looking at the picture. Am I doing it right? <laughs> you know, so how can we take this thing, movement, and translate it to language? If I hadn't been talking with him, it never would happen. But through our conversation, and also if he hadn't been talking to me, it wouldn't happen. Like the two of us talking, we came up with this idea of like, hey, man, if you run in place barefoot to the song Rock Lobster, okay. you can learn perfect running form. That's it. And the reason why is because it's about foot striking by cadence. So if you get the right cadence, bop, bop, just like a, a, a boxer jump the rope, bop, mm-hmm. bop, 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 get that kind of bouncy cadence, number one. And the foot strike, if you run in place barefoot, you, you can't land on your heel. You, just, you can't do it. You got to bounce. You know. So essentially, we just, yeah, run with your back against the wall. If you kick the wall, you're doing it wrong. If you move across the room, you're doing it wrong. So if you stay in position near the wall, you're barefoot, you're running in place, you got rock lobster on Five minutes, you now know what perfect running form is. But that, that that resulted from the conversation. Now, in Born to Run 1, the original, the OG, obviously there's no pressure on you writing a sequel now, but you talked about you know different foods, chia seeds. Are you talking about any diet in this uh, in Born to Run 2 or no? Yeah. Oh, right awesome. out of the gates, man. First and foremost, Mike, because I think this is where people get themselves in trouble mm-hmm. uh, because almost all of us run because of our relationship with food somehow, you know? Uh, hey, I'm running to lose a little bit of weight. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm running just so I can keep eating buffalo hot wings. You know that basically we're running as a response to what's going in our in our mouths. And to me, that that's the beginning of the downward spiral. Yeah. Because you know your fork becomes your coach. That hey, I'm running in response to what I just ate, and you're running to catch up with those calories, but you never will. You know your body will figure out what you're, your your body wants to store fat. Mm-hmm. You know, like your your Stone Age body goes, hey man, I'm going to load up. Cause it's gonna be a cold winter your body doesn't know that there's a thermostat your body thinks it's in a cave and so it wants to store this fat and so what happens is yeah okay i'm gonna run four miles a day i'm gonna lose a few pounds after a couple of weeks your body figures out what's going on hey i see and what now, you're doing right yeah smart you so you do four miles a day ain't doing shit. oh i better run six miles a day your body figures it out mm-hmm. you're, you're gonna constantly be hamster wheeling trying to outrun your body it's never gonna happen and so Chapter one is we call it your fork is not your coach. Oh, I love and it. 
And here's the thing about it too, Mike, the whole purpose of this book is we want to teach people how they can interpret things by feel. Like I don't want you to have to look at your Strava or do blood tests. So we do a thing called a two-week test. In a two-week test, you just strip out all the high glycemic foods, all the foods that are going to jack your blood sugar, you know, rice, pasta, donuts, even hummus. We have a whole list of foods. These are going to jack your blood sugar. Just go cold turkey for two weeks. And it's not a bad two weeks. You know, you eat all the steak you want, eat all the bacon, eat all the sour cream you want. Mm -hmm. Those are all low glycemic foods. Eat them for two weeks. At the end of two weeks, have a half a bagel and see how you feel. If you feel fine, then good. You can process a half a bagel, no problem. Then have the other half and see how you feel. For me, I, I found this out. Dude, I, I bought a – you guys have – you know Wawa? Of course, yeah. My, my mom lives down the Jersey Shore, so I know Wawa. Okay, there you go. I went to Wawa. I got a classic, right? 12-inch hoagie. I ate the first half, six inches. Six inches, felt fucking great. Ate the second half, I felt the food coming. I'm like, oh, wow. The second half of the roll, that was my limit. I got to eat the shorty from now on because what I found is it wasn't the, the lunch meat. It wasn't the, the mayo. It wasn't the lettuce. tomato. It was the second half of that roll. And that feeling you get where you feel like all of a sudden, oh, I'm kind of sluggish. Yes, you know, of course. I need a coffee. That, that post-lunch feeling, to me, I always thought, oh, I'm tired or at the end of the day. It wasn't that at all. It was a response to the second half of the roll. And I never would have known this, but you do the two-week test and you realize, oh, what's going on is my blood sugar is jacked. My body is just suddenly going to a slump. It's storing fat. So we start off chapter one. Oh, I like that. two-week test. You know, it doesn't say don't eat this the rest of your mm -hmm. life, but understand if I do eat this, here's how I'm going to feel and here's why. Wow. I have two nerdy reader questions for you. Being a war correspondent as yourself, you're writing about what you see. In Born to Run, you're a character. Running with Sherman, you're a character. Was it weird to put the camera, let's say, back on you and write about yourself? Is that Was that different for you? So weird, dude. And again, another super perceptive question because this is a massive dilemma, particularly in Born to Run. So – uh, so I read Born to Run, turned it into my editor, like kind of waiting for his reaction. He goes, yeah, I, I think you better consider starting over. <laughs> like literally tear it up and start over. Uh, I, I, just, I just muffed it, man. I just whiffed. And so work on a second draft. And I turn it in and he goes, where, where are you? You know, you keep making the same mistake. You're not in the book. I'm like, yeah. I got Jen Shelton vomiting in the bathtub. I, I got <laughs> Vomiting know, margaritas, he, Yeah. <laughs> Right, I, I got Scott George in a race against Stony Age Indians. Like, I'm not, in, I'm the least interesting guy in the story. He's like, yeah, but you're the most accessible. And to me, as, as a correspondent, you are never in your articles. And so, to me, this was a big like change. Like, what you want me to show up in this story? So that was that was that was uncomfortable. And so, in Born to Run, I kind of put myself in a little bit as like the observer kind of guy, uh, natural born heroes, same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. With running with Sherman, um, that, yeah, that was a big transition where it's about me and my family. And, um, but there's no other way to tell the story. And so it was a very uncomfortable process. But it was, uh, you know, it's important. It's important to learn. It, it, I mean, it was like, it was like, I'm going to draw a comparison with you with podcasting. Was it hard for you to go on the mic and in front of the camera or? Was it kind of natural? I mean, you're basically deflecting all the questions at me. Do you ever sort of just talk about yourself? Uh, no, I actually don't. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah. you want to know why it wasn't. Originally, I thought it was going to be. And when I started uh, doing a lot of celebrities and big-time athletes, like sitting across from Mariano Rivera, I would be nervous. But 
as my profession, sometimes I have to go to a crowd of people and talk and I can't be like, I'm so sorry. You have to like be very assertive and like, let them know like, Hey, I'm in charge. So I think that really helped me when I'm sitting across from uh, like behind me, uh, Dan Issel and Chris Canty, I sat across from them and I had to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm in charge. It's my show. Even though I'm like so starstruck and you know, I know my, um, my crutch was, I'd invite fans of whoever. So Barry Larkin from the Reds just came on. So I invited a few Reds fans to come. And I act like, oh, yeah, Barry, these are some of your fans. And I act like I'm not starstruck, but I'm like, oh, this is really cool. I'm hanging out with Barry. And I'm like, Barry, they just want some pictures if you don't. like. So I played it off like, guys, you're here to watch Barry. So that kind of was my crutch with them. Yeah. <laughs> my, my other reader question for you was this. In Born to Run, you're all in. You literally have the reader, I'll say runner, all along, all along. And then it's a screeching halt. And you go to like the talking about the sneakers and the scientific model. I loved it. Was that a dilemma for you? Because afterwards, my uh, my lieutenant is a huge reader, and he's a big minimalist runner. Oh, because I read Born to Run. As I'm reading the book, I'm like, yo, Lou, was it weird he just stopped the – like you stopped the book. It could have been a whole nother, you know, insert. Was was that hard for you to do? Because it, it made me – I wanted to write to you right away as I hit that point. So I got a few questions. Do you – so you've had, you've had a number of authors on. Um, I got to tell you, man. We're deep in the interview, so there's no reason for me to kiss your butt. You know, oh, yeah. like I get done that early on. I'm gonna tell you the honest truth. You should do literary re- literary reviews, book reviews, because <laughs> you were asking super astute, like behind the scenes insider stuff. I like, appreciate that. Yeah, I was so curious with that with you. You're back. You're back in the butcher shop, seeing how the meat's being cut. Like that's the kind of questions you're asking. And most people don't ask those kind of questions. You know. They want to hey, oh, yeah, how fresh is this ribeye? No, you're back there. <laughs> you understand how the thing's taken apart in the back. So um, that's, that's what it's, being the grandson of a butcher is all about. All your references are cutting me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was super hard. And that was the chapter, which, again, one of these lucky turns in the road where I could have gone a different direction. Thank God luck took me one direction. Because that was a chapter I was on the edge. I was going to cut it out. Like I was 50-50. I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, because you're right. It hits the brakes. It's mm-hmm. an adventure story, adventure story. Then all of a sudden, wait, what's this whiteboard treatise about the history of running issues? Yeah. And the second thing about it was, so yeah, it, it's the only chapter where there's no story. You know, it's just like shoes are this, technology that, injuries are this. And I, I didn't like it for that reason. But I couldn't, I couldn't sexy it up uh, at all. The only way I could do it, actually, I, uh, I, I put the first sentence being something like, you know, you know, of course, Barefoot Ted was right. I figure I'll, I'll put my most colorful character mm-hmm. in the first sentence. Maybe I'll trick people into not realizing that I'm about to give them a lecture. Uh, and then the second thing about it was that uh, by the time I wrote it, I kind of assumed everybody knew the stuff already. Because when you're in a bubble, because mm-hmm. now I'm hanging out with Barefoot Ken Bob and Barefoot Ted. And I'm doing all this, this uh, shoe research for two years. Irene Davis, in the two years, you think you've been having this conversation so much, you think everybody's having the conversation. So I'm like, ah, this is old news. Everybody knows it. It's kind of boring. Let, let me just stick it in just in case. Yeah. And that just in case became the thing that the book became known for. And, and it's wild. Now, did you get a lot of shit for that from, I don't want to say Nike, Nike's, not, but did you get a lot of like backlash from that? I'm still getting it to this day. Like, I, I can't believe we're, I can't believe I'm still in the conversation. Not from the shoe companies, you know. The shoe companies, they don't care. No. Like, if you tell them, hey, we want a shoe made out of cotton candy, like, sure, we'll make you out of cotton candy. We don't give a shit. You want minimal shoes? We'll make minimal shoes, you know? You don't want them? We'll, we'll make you hocus. They don't care. Whatever the market demands, they will provide and sell it. Um, but from, like, the, the, 
people in the sport, like to this day, you know, I go, yeah, but where's the proof? Where's the evidence? You don't have the research. I go, dude, I don't need the research. Feet come pre-installed, you know? <laughs> you're, you're, you're the one telling me to spend $400 on a carbon plate. Where's your evidence this thing is going to do anything? Because I guarantee you in six months, you'd be selling me something else that's supposed to be even better. So I, that's why, I, you know, look, to me, there's no argument. You can't tell me, or, or if you want to tell me that form is not all important, then back it up. Tell me how I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Tell me how running is the only sport where you just go ahead and do it, just buy a different show. So anyway, I, 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 that argument goes on to this day, which I can't, I can't believe it. I want to circle back around to Lancaster, your uh, former hometown. Yeah. I, before you came on, I get a quick run. They run out there, and it, I'm actually—I know it sounds silly, of course, everyone runs, but they like—they have a whole Lancaster running crew and stuff, right? Oh, dude, it's worth a trip, man, for sure. Uh, so, thing about it was, I wasn't in Lancaster. I was down in Peach Bottom, which is 25 miles south of Lancaster. So, to us, <clears throat> Lancaster was like Manhattan, and I was like in Jersey City. You know, like I'm—I'm I'm I'm on the path train across the river. <laughs> you know, so. Five miles down. So down here where we were, this is all Amish farms. So yeah, I was the only runner out there. If you ever saw another runner, it was like being on the face of Mars, like oh, another human, you know? So, <laughs> hey, sir. Yeah, like I would like run people down. Like, what are you doing? Like, oh, I'm just here visiting my cousin. Like oh, yeah, of course you are. You know? So yeah, I would go for these two-hour runs on farm runs and see nobody. You know, just Amish farmers and wave. Here's a quick funny story. So I'm out for a run one time, and I'm uh, passing one of my neighbors. And he goes, hey, Chris, Chris, uh, you want some cream? Like the milk truck came and some of our milk was a couple hours too old. There was a cutoff. We got milk we couldn't get. You, you want a couple of uh, quarts of cream? Well, yeah, but I'm in the middle of a run. Oh, they're cool. You can make butter. So they gave me these, uh, these gallon jugs full of cream. They go, when you run, just shake it and you'll have butter. I'm like, cool. This is really fucking cool. So I'm running with these jugs, right, making butter. And as I'm circling back, I go by another farm. Guy weighs me in, and he goes, "Hey, Chris, we ended up shooting three does today. They were bow hunters. We got more meat than we can use. You want you want a leg?" I'm like, "Yeah, but I already, I already have two jugs of cream. I got butter." <laughs> yeah. So he go, "Yeah, well, can you put it under your arm?" So I ended up putting a deer leg into my shorts and nodding it off, mm-hmm. and then walking home with a deer leg in my shorts and then t- two gallons of butter. And I got, I come through the door and my wife and two daughters are having dinner and now it's getting dark. I come through the door. I got blood running down my legs from the deer leg. <laughs> These two jugs of butter. <laughs> and my wife just looks at me like, well, of course, of course this is happening. That That's is what it was like running in Southern awesome. Ready yeah. to finish up with some quick hit questions? Yeah, man. But I just got to tell you, yeah, if you ever get a chance, uh, the Lancaster uh, Roadrunners Club okay. is, a, is a great club and they run trails. Take the train down from New York, connect with these guys. They run trails you'd never find. So fun. They're Do they have crew. half marathons and stuff down there? Or, mar- or no? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the best, my favorite race in the world is the Bird in Hand Half Marathon. It's in September of every year. Uh, it's in Bird in Hand, Pennsylvania. Dude, you would love it. You would love it. I actually, I describe it pretty well in Born to Run 2. It's run by the Amish for the Amish community. Oh. And so. And I can join, show- I can enter though? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, Wherever it was like Runner's World has listed as one of the, the top uh, half marathons in the world because okay. it's silent. It's on green rolling hills. Um, there's no rock bands playing or anything. It, dude, it is an experience. You'd love it. And the, the, the cookout afterwards, I mean, you get the full on Amish onslaught, like barbecue chicken, macaroni, and 
baked beans, you know, like this is like a, a serious old school. That's sick. After the half marathon, you'd love it. That is love sick. It. Bird in hand half marathon. You ready to yeah. finish up? Let's go, man. You and I are Bring at on. a bar. You and I are at a bar in New York City. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? You want to impress people in the bar? You got any cool people on your phone? Yeah, that's funny because I only got one. Uh, Rick Rubin. That's a music producer. Yeah, Rubin. that's a really good answer. Wow, and that's a, the only one. There's that's no, a solid no answer. And the funny thing about wow. it is, um, so we, we became, we've never actually met in the flesh, but we became sort of friendly and he had some questions for me about stuff. And now, because I'm in Hawaii, I'll get texts from Rick Rubin at like four o'clock in the morning. Like, have you seen this article? I'm like, come on, Rick. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good one already, Rick, Rick Rubin. I've asked every guest who ever came. That's a great answer. And I love that the random text. That's a cool one. I almost, I almost want to put it to the test right now. I almost want to like text Rick in real time. Uh, actually, I interviewed so for this book. Um, I had a big question: was you know, should you run with earbuds and listen to music or not? Mm-hmm. I'm anti. No, 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 no. Don't listen to music when you run. But at the same time, I'm realizing. But every time I'm in a race and the band starts playing, I run better. You know, I've never run worse when <laughs> Gloria Gaynor's playing, right? <laughs> So I thought, okay, well, let's ask some people. So there's a girl named Erin uh, Malloy uh, in, uh, in Brooklyn, actually, Lady Southpaw. Uh, she's a punk musician who did a whole album, dude, uh, about running the New York City Marathon. So anyway, she has this whole album song. And uh, I interviewed her. I interviewed uh, Rick Rubin. Like, what should you do? And uh, it was kind of cool. I was able to actually text Rick Rubin. Hey, dude, can I interview you about running with music? He's like, yeah, sure. That's so, awesome. Uh, that, that's it. So there's, there's, no, there's no runner-up. That's it. Rick Rubin's a good shot. answer. How about coolest piece of memorabilia that you own? Coolest piece of memorabilia that I own. Wow, I'm not I'm not kind of that guy that carries stuff around. What do I got? What do I got that I've saved? Mika, what's the best piece of memorabilia that I have? Yeah, my wife just got up and she just walked out of bed. She's just making coffee. I'm hitting her with this question. She's yeah. Like, <laughs> Uh, I'll tell you, you know, I th- uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll give her this one. The first pair of, uh, oh yeah, I got a pair of sandals that are new from Kimade from, uh, from Born to Run from Tatamata, um, tribe made for me. So See, uh, I saw that's those a, sandals. a great, like a personal answer. Okay. How about this one? Yeah. One place in the world you want to run that you haven't run yet. You haven't ran where? And you're like, oh, I wish I can run there. Yeah. Well, these are, these are, these are. These are bean balls, man. These are coming right at my head. Uh, <laughs> I, I, this is going to sound like a kiss-ass question uh, response. No, okay. I, I was, I was going to actually say with you, dude, through Brooklyn, because I tend to be very like whatever's in front of me is what I want. Yeah, yeah. Um, but without making that sound too much like a butt kiss, I would say I would love to run again for a second. Uh, I already did run with them. So I did, remember those Latino women I was telling you about the Santa Mujeres in of San course. Diego? I had such a trip with them. I had such a good time with them. Uh, I can only think of, dude, I'm really struggling here. I'm gasping. I, I don't think I have the imagination to think of places I haven't been to. I just instantly go back to places that I have. Can we, can we change the question? Like a place you'd like to run to again? You got it. Chris, what place would you like to run again? <laughs> All right. I, actually, I'll tell you what, man. I would love to. Maybe this is partially correct answer. I would love to run with you now at the Burden Hands in Lancaster, that half marathon, to see it through your eyes. Like now I've, I've hyped it up so much. 
Oh, you hyped um, it up. I'm doing it this year. I already jotted it down. I'm I'm doing it this year. Time enough for debate. Well, next year. All right, obviously. dude. Should we should we keep this in a in a thing back and forth between you and I? Hundred like, percent. Five me, million call percent. Me to ask because to be able to take you there and show you yes. in your ear the point where you tell me, Chris, shut the fuck up, let me run already. You know. Um, and the thing about it is, there's a five k on Friday night and then the half marathon Saturday morning. Done. You can double it, dip, do them both. It's so fun because the five k is at sunset. The half marathons at sunrise, oh, and there's a place called the Valley of No Wires because none of this has electricity or phones. So you're running through the oh. 1700s, dude. Uh, all right, how about that? A run I've never done before is running with you in Lancaster for the Birmingham half. I like how you double dip. You've been doing it since your articles. I like it. <laughs> and now, right? two, two last ones. I googled it. Do you have an app, the Born to Run? Is that your app or no? Yeah, it kind of is. So we created okay. a training program. Um, in the back of this book. So Eric came up with it's a 90 day training program. So mm -hmm. in the back of the book, you could just scan it. Perfect. And again, what I didn't want to do is tell people you already, you already, ought to without telling them what to do. So we created this 90 day like reboot. So yeah, at the end of the book, you just scan this thing and it pops a 90 day training program on your phone. And I know uh, you mentioned you were a reader. Who do you read and what are you reading right now? Oh, so this is, this is a writer I think you'd be interested in. So, uh, there, there are two people I just read. One is Sarah Grand, G-R-A-N. And as a detective, you might be really interested. So she has a series, the Claire DeWitt Mystery Series. Okay. And as a woman who's the world's greatest detective. And, but she's a fuck up. She's a hardcore fuck up who's ah. like drinking too much, getting herself into trouble. Um, but it's, it's a funny, weird, really well-written series. Sarah Grant, G-R-A-N. And she's like invisible online. Like the point, like, is this like some dude masquerading yeah. as this woman? Because like she has got no footprint online, but she's a great writer. And there's another guy named uh, James Kestrel. It's his pen name, K-E-S-T-R-E-L. And he wrote this book called Five Decembers, uh, which is also like kind of a police procedural mm -hmm. based in Hawaii. Now, I read it for that reason. Like, I, I read it with like, a grudge. Like, yeah, this guy's not going to do shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy fucking knows Hawaii. So, um, yeah, so I, I, tend, I tend to get into those kind of suspense, procedural, where exactly is this going kind of book. Uh, Frederick Forsyth was like the classic guy who did, uh, um, God damn it, you know, Deaths of File and uh, books like that. So those kind of ones where we get to watch people step by mm -hmm. step try to figure shit out. Give the plug. Yeah, so James Kestrel, yeah. Sarah Grant, and uh, Frederick Forsyth. Not that you need to, but give the plug, the Instagram, the Twitter, where everyone can buy Born to Run, Born to Run 2, Running with Sherman. Give the whole shabam. Yeah, man. Just look for me. Look for Chris McDougal online, Chris McDougal author uh, on Instagram and, uh, and Twitter. But yeah, the book, the book is actually coming out December 6th, so it'll be out about two days after our conversation. It'll be out It'll be out and, today because I, I posted on Tuesday, so it'll be out today. Uh, Born to Run 2. I'm Listen, so here's here's a serious plug. Um, I love this book, man. I'm kind of crazy about it. I'm just uh, that's awesome. I'm just so happy. It's one of these ones. Usually, a book is a is a low grade disappointment. Like here's what I'm aiming for. I'll settle for this. Every other book I've ever written, I, I, I got this vision. And this is as good as I can get. This is the opposite. I mean, hey, I want to do this. Wow, it turned into this. Like I'm still. I love how pa I love how passionate you are about it too. That's awesome. I bring it's like it's yeah. like infectious, really. Yeah, I keep flipping through it. Every time I got next to me, I'm like, wow. you know, I'm like, wow, god damn, this is so much better. And yes, that working with Eric, I think it's the reason why.
I'd never collaborated before. Having a second brain took me to next level. Listen to me. Stay safe out there. Do you ever come to New York? I know you have a, a reason to come here because of uh... – I will now. Yeah. So my daughters are – it's a yeah, freshman college there. So uh, – yeah, so we we just dropped her off. We spent a week there, dude. Let's find each other. You know, one hundred percent. So we're gonna keep in touch, dude. This was when I mean a blast. And when you're in New York, there's two private bars, uh, Jack Dempsey's and Legends, that give me a private floor to do this. So we can do it. We drink for free. We eat for free. We'll throw a microphone, have some fun, and uh, maybe go for a run. Why are we doing that now? You're, you're too far <laughs> away from me. When, when we hang up, playing? yeah, we have a, a private floor. It's great. They set everything up for me, but uh, we'll do it. And let me know when you get the stuff I send you, my friend. This was an absolute blast. I can't thank you enough, man. So thank fun, you. Dude. So fun, dude. I feel like I'm talking to a cousin. All right, Mike, Mike, let's do it again, bud. See you later, my friend. Thank, thank you. you. Bye, man. Bye-bye.